I want to invite you to have a seat. As you do, I'm going to dismiss Hubtown Kids. As we were singing the song, I leaned forward and I whispered to uh, a brother who has many kids in his row. Uh, the song was saying, "Great or many our sins they are many. His mercy is more." And I made a Freudian slip and said, "Our kids they are many, and they they really really are." And so we'll let this many leave, and it'll be God's grace to us. Just kidding. As they go, Hubtown kids, being dismissed, as they go, they're going to be learning in both the gray and the blue station this idea that God is self-sufficient. Wouldn't that be nice to experience self-sufficiency? All of us, we, we hope for our children that one day they'll get to that point, but the reality is they'll never be self-sufficient. That's one of the reasons that we worship God as Christians because we know ourselves to not be self-sufficient and when we consider God, he is self-sufficient and that surely in my heart and I believe in yours as well, stirs us up to praise God. But we're not going to be talking too much about self-sufficiency this morning. We're going to be looking at the very next verse in our study of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11. So if you got your copy of God's word, I want to invite you to turn there. If you're new around here, one of the things that you'll probably notice uh, after not too long, and I'll just go ahead and tell you now, um, we don't get too creative when it comes to what we're going to preach on on Sunday mornings. Generally speaking, uh, we're going to choose a book of the Bible, we're going to open it up, and we're going to start in the beginning and we're going to work our way through. And so we started in the book of Hebrews some months ago, and we're taking it verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, and we're believing that God wants to speak through uh, his word to us this morning. And so we're saying, God, speak now. And uh, as, as providence would have it, as God's will would, would lead us, we're in Hebrews 11, verse 23. If you didn't bring a book, a Bible this morning, that's perfectly fine. There's a hard black Bible probably right in front of you. It looks just like this one here. You can open that up to uh, page 1195. And there in the bottom right-hand corner, you'll see verse 23. What does the Word of God say? We're just going to look at one verse today, at least in the book of Hebrews. That was a trick. The Word of God says this, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. We do this every week. We're going to stop and just ask God to, again, quickly, to bless the reading of his word. This is his word. Father, there's no power in things that I can say. There's only power in your word. So we come to you now and we ask that you would meet us here. Father, we've come in a thousand uh, different, uh, from a thousand different directions, and yet we're here now to listen to your word. And so, Father, would you speak? Your servants are listening. Jesus, we come to the Father in your name. Amen. We all love origin stories, don't we? I don't know if you're a Marvel fan. I've definitely been bit by the bug. I enjoy to, to learn about these superheroes. I love to hear about a superhero, uh, maybe a little bit in this person's story, and then I begin to ask myself, I, I want to know, know more about that. I wonder what that person's uh, upbringing was like. I wonder how they became the, the superhero that they, uh, that they are now. Well, then Marvel usually hears that little 
thought in my mind and says, well, we're going to make a spinoff show and it's going to show you how that person came to be. Well, we love those sorts of stories. One of the most powerful figures and, and, and talked about so much in the book of Hebrews is this person, Moses. But where did Moses come from? What's Moses' origin story? Well, I think we would really be missing out if we didn't just take some time and read in the book of Exodus, chapter 1 and 2, portions of 2. Um, so if you would, just turn with me back to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is the second book in the entire Bible. It's the second book in the Old Testament. And uh, if you're using the hard black Bible in front of you, go, go to your left toward the very beginning. And we're just going to read the very beginning on page 53. The very beginning of this book, the book of Exodus. Lots of portions of the scripture are, are, uh, are challenging for us to read through and understand. And sometimes uh, some portions don't really come to life as well as others. And while it's all profitable, it's all given by God, I think the book of Exodus is such a powerful story. Not just because of the content, but even the way that it's laid out for us. And so as we read this text, you're, you're welcome to follow along. But you could also just close your eyes. And imagine as we read, and as we read, I'll make some comments on the text this morning. So Exodus 1, on into chapter 2. It says, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. You may remember at this point in the story that there was a famine in the land and Joseph had already come down to Egypt by God's providence. He was there and God was working behind the scenes to raise Joseph up for a, a particular season to serve God's people in a particular way and, and that was in Egypt. Well, because of that famine, uh, Joseph's father and all of his brothers end up in Egypt as well, all of them together. And you could say it was a bit of a happy reunion. It was bumpy along the way, but in the end, it, was, it all worked out well. Joseph, there is a ruler in Egypt, but eventually, as happens in life, he dies. And so did all his brothers, that entire generation of transplants that came from Canaan land, the promised land, came down to Egypt to escape the famine, they all died. But the story goes on. It says in verse 7, but the people of Israel were, were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew, ex grew ex exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. It's interesting, the, the language here. Now, not only is this a true statement that takes place in verse 7, but it's also a fulfillment and part of what God had promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He said that they would be fruitful and they would be multiplying and that they would fill the land. Now, this is not the land. Egypt is not the land that they were promised to fill. Canaan land, the promised land, Israel, that's the land that they would be going back to. And that's why Joseph said, hey, when you guys eventually go that way, Please don't leave my, my bones here. I want them to be buried with my ancestors, with my fathers. So they're increasing. Generations are going on from generation to generation. And then verse 8 comes. I think this is one of the scariest verses, really, in all of Exodus. 
maybe even on a good portion of the Old Testament. It says, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He didn't know Joseph. Joseph was beloved by the Egyptians. Why? Because he literally had been their superhero. God had raised him up for a specific time and had done an incredible work. And Joseph was such a wonderful man, loved by Egyptians and his own family alike. But now there's a new king that comes to power there in Egypt, and he does not know Joseph. Part of not knowing Joseph is that he doesn't care for Joseph, doesn't love Joseph, has no relationship with Joseph, nor Joseph's people. He doesn't appreciate that story. History tells us at this point in Egypt, there was some intense racism taking place, some political unrest as well. This new king that's come to power, what does it say? Well, he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And they built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. And the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, and so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel to work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service. In mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field, in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So over time, because of fear, because of their witnessing God's blessing on the people of Israel, these Hebrews, the Egyptians then become afraid. And it starts out with higher taxes, starts out with some indirect racism, and it ends with them being made to work ruthlessly as slaves. The tables had turned for the children of Israel, the, ch the children of Jacob the Hebrews. But it doesn't stop there. Even through all this oppression, even through all this difficulty, the people continue to be blessed. They continue to grow. And so he's made some changes, you could say, the king, the pharaoh has, but now he's going to take even more desperate measures here. In verse 15, it says, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, and the other Pua. These are great names, by the way, if you're having a baby. And what does the king say to them? He says, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and you see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. This is genocide. This is, a, this is an attempt to dilute and destroy the people of God. To literally take away a generation of young males so that the women can be taken as slaves and folded into the Egyptians and the people of God, along with the promises of God, to be diluted and dissolved. But it doesn't take place. Look at verse 17. But the midwives feared God 
They had faith in God. They believed that he is or that he existed, that he was a rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and then they don't do it. But they let the male children live. In verse 18, it says, So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women, they're not like the Egyptian women. for They're vigorous. And they give birth before the midwife even comes to them. And so God dealt with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. Do you see this rhythm? The promises of God, the purposes of God, amongst the people of God, just continues, despite circumstances, it continues to see blessing. They multiplied and they grew very, very strong. Verse 21 says, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Look at verse 22 then. Pharaoh doesn't stop there. All of the work that he's done to suppress, supplant, to destroy, it's come to naught. But Pharaoh has not given up just yet. The story continues and the plot thickens. Then Pharaoh, in verse 22, commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This is more on the nose and more in your face than the Pharaoh coming to power not knowing Joseph. And yet this is a result of that Pharaoh not knowing Joseph. Every son that is born to the Hebrews, the people, the Egyptians, are to throw into the Nile, into the river. Now the Nile River is not like the Antietam Creek. It's full of life and it's full of life and these sorts of creatures that have life would like to bring death to children, to babies let alone the, the water itself, if it wasn't to be drowned there, the creatures that live in the Nile, Nile would take care of those babies. It's a sad, sad story. But it doesn't end here. And really, everything in chapter 1 is just context. It's just painting the background for what's about to take place. We need context, don't we? Well, that's what we got. Now let's actually hear what takes place? What's the point? Well, starting in chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi, one of the sons there of Jacob, he went and took all of his uh, wives, uh, 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 he from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. And the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that the child was a fine child, she hid him three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took, him from a, took uh, for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister, there of the baby, he st she stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Here we see a man that's not named and a woman that's not named, particularly a woman after having a child, seeing this, this child as a precious life given to her by God. And she de determines in her heart and along with the agreement of her husband that she's not going to allow this baby to be torn from her arms and thrown into the river. She would defy the king's edict. She would break the rules. 
She would not live in fear. She would obey God. She would honor this child. And she would keep him. And so she does as long as she can, but the day comes when she devises a plan. Well, they're going to put this baby in a basket. Confidence and faith of this mother and family are going to lift up and bear up this child as it's placed into the River Nile and launched into an eddy where they believe the Pharaoh's daughter will be. And that's exactly what takes place. This plan that they have, that they hatch, look how it unfolds. Verse 5, now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. And while her young women walked beside the river, she saw a basket among the reeds. And she sent her servant women and she took it. She was curious. What's in this basket? This peculiar structure. When she had opened it, it says in verse 6, chapter 2, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. And she took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrew children. And then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, the one that was watching in the bulrushes, the one that was looking, the one that was executing her mother's plan, she shows up. Shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew woman to, to nurse the child from you or for you? I know that you're going to need some help. That baby's awfully hungry, and I just happened to be noticing then as I walked by here, just piddling around, wasting time, but I'd be glad to go help you out. You look like an important lady with lots of things to do. And Pharaoh's daughter said to this young girl, the sister of the baby, go. And so the girl went. And she called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child, this unnamed child that I know nothing about, this random baby and this random woman, would you come together and would you care for this baby? And so this woman, Pharaoh's daughter, just some random woman, she takes the child and she nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. What a powerful story. How inspiring of a story is this? There's so many things that we could talk about. There's so many things that we learn and so many things to celebrate that we understand about God through the story. One of which I love the fact that she named him Moses because she drew him out of the water. <laughs> she was delivered to her by God himself. We see the providence of God. We see the faithfulness of God. And in this story we see some important people. Moses, mostly. Hold that there and let me ask you a question. Do the names James and Dolores, that couple, does that mean anything to you, any of you here? James and Dolores? Some of you are thinking, is, are our lights on in the parking lot? Well, no. James and Dolores, their parents, 
you know who their child was? I, I'm confident that everybody here knows this one of their children. How about Fred and Clara? Anybody know a couple, Fred and Clara? They had a pretty famous child as well. James and Dolores, they had a child named Michael Jordan. Maybe you've heard of him. Fred and Clara, their last names were Elliot. They had a son named James. Most of us know him by Jim. Have you ever heard of Amram and Jochebed? They're not listed in Hebrews 11. Well, at least they're not named. They're not even listed in Exodus 1 or 2. You have to keep reading the story and you find out indirectly in chapter 6 that Amram and Jochebed are the parents that are responsible for bringing Moses into the world, putting him into a basket, and floating him up to Pharaoh's daughter. This morning, as you think about Hebrews 11, verse 23, and as you think about Exodus chapter 1 and 2, I want you to notice that the, the person that's listed as being a person of faith, or people of faith, are the parents of Moses. When you first read that verse, verse 23, you, you might be tempted to think that by faith Moses, that he's the actor there in this verse. But he's not the actor. He is being acted upon. The faith of somebody else, particularly of his parents, is how he was delivered. Again, that's such a wonderful story. And there's so many things that we could take out of that. But as we consider the story, we consider this particular verse I want to give you the main idea. The main idea this morning is this, that the path of true faith will often diverge from both the law of the land and even the instincts of our heart. The path of true faith will often divert from both the law of the land and the instincts of our hearts. In other words, each of us have natural internal leadings and we have external pressures. And both these internal leadings and those external pressures often are lined up with God's will for you. But at the same time, or I should say at other times, they are not. And one of the dangers that we see is that the cultural pressures not to steal do line up with God's will for your life, but when the cultural tides shift and turn, do not follow them, follow God by faith. When your instincts line up with faith, and it's easy to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, follow faith and allow those natural instincts to be there as well. But when they pass, when, the, when the, the paths diverge and the instincts say, get revenge, hold a grudge, the path of faith diverges and says, again, be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. And so this idea, the, the path of true faith often diverging from the law of the land and the instincts of our heart, really is a warning to you today. We're speeding along the road. We're thinking that 
everything's lining up. But ahead of us, there is a sharp turn ahead. Faith goes right. Instincts and external pressures go off a cliff. Sharp turn ahead. I really want to warn you this morning not to be lulled into thinking that what's culturally acceptable, what may even be legal, and what's natural to you is not necessarily in line with faith. For some time, faith and instinct Faith and adherence to the local laws, they were aligned for young ladies there in Egypt who were Hebrews. Young ladies like Jochebed, they had no apparent challenge, really. They would bear children believing that God was blessing them. He was blessing them. He was allowing them to receive a blessing and and through them to, to multiply out and bless the people of God in a foreign land. But one day, all of that changed. Everything changed. The laws of the land changed. They weren't even allowed to bear a son. They weren't even allowed to be a part of that blessing of God. It was a hard right turn and a hard left, and you couldn't go straight. One day, obedience to Pharaoh and the, just having a child, they separated. And Jochebed realized the pressures The fork in the road as she looked on the face of her baby boy. And what did she say? He's beautiful. He's beautiful. I love that word. Verse 23. He was beautiful. He was very fine. It's natural and common for parents to think that their babies are beautiful, aren't they? Some of us are good at holding our tongue as we hear a mother or father talk about their son or daughter and how beautiful they are. Subjective as it is, we understand it. It's very common. It's very natural. But it's not natural instincts. It's not her love as a mother, unique as it is, that Jacobet is being praised for. She's not listed here as the parents of Moses because she, like every other woman in the world, when she looked at her baby, beautiful or ugly, said, oh my goodness, isn't he so precious? That's not why she's listed here. And so why is she? Well, we see this particularly in the realm of parenting. However, it's true in every context that our instincts will lead us to make decisions that please God, but many times the opposite is also true. Often our instincts will allow us to be in line with what God would have us to do, but many times the opposite is true. The instincts that we have, they mislead us away from what God is calling us to do. It's natural for Jochebed to say that her baby is beautiful, but it's, it's also natural for her to say, I do not want this baby. He will only bring danger to this home. He'll only, he'll only bring attention to us. My other son, Aaron, he'll be destroyed. What if they come in and take Moses, this new baby that I've just been given, and they throw him into the river, and they also throw the rest of my children? What if they take everything from me? I don't want a baby now. This is ridiculous. Every freedom, every name and good Thing that I've experienced will be taken from me. I don't want this baby. 
You see, there's the instinct of a mother's love and there's the instinct of self-preservation. And one is far more beautiful and precious, but both are true. And they're at war in every heart of every pregnant woman here in this time in Egypt. And that's why Moses' origin story is so fantastic. Why? Because sadly, what Moses' mother did was not that common. Wasn't that common? Jochebed is listed here in Hebrews 11, not because she thought her baby was beautiful like every other woman, but because many of those women looked at their babies and even their pregnancies with disdain. You can imagine that. Imagine, women, that your menstrual cycle, it's, it's off. Something's, something's wrong. Something's different. At first you think nothing of it, but then you realize for sure you are pregnant. You've been there before, and you know. And you're overcome with joy. You're overcome with excitement. You're overcome with hope, and yet it quickly evaporates as you realize what this means. Suddenly you're, you're enveloped by sorrow. And you remember Pharaoh's decree. You remember that even though this is something that God says is precious and joyful and suddenly you are overcome with sadness. And on your back you feel a burden. Instead of beauty in your promised child, you see a foulness. You see harm. This sort of mindset shift is not too difficult for us to imagine being in the hearts and minds of young women there in Egypt. We see this same sort of a struggle in our day, although the rules are a little bit different. Things that God has given our country as a blessing are being thought of as a curse. Things that God has given to us as a good thing are thought of as a burden. The truth is that Pharaoh's genocide of the Hebrew people, it was a, literally a drop in the bucket compared to the genocide, genocide that we have inflicted upon ourselves as a nation. It's a scourge that we ourselves have embraced. I'm speaking of abortion. I'm speaking of the fact that in this country you're allowed, encouraged, it's facilitated that you would destroy the life of the preborn in the most sacred and safe place in the entire world, in the entire universe. Comparatively, the United States kills more babies in one year than Pharaoh conceivably could have done in his whole lifetime. In one year. Vividly, though, in abortion, we see this confliction of interests. That's one of the reasons why the Pregnancy Center loves to to get a mother, a, a young mother, to see an ultrasound of their baby and to hear the heartbeat because there's an instinct in our hearts, in the hearts of a mother, that when they hear that heartbeat and they see that baby, that they see what Jacobed saw, beauty, the promise of God, the blessing of God on his people, and yet there's another instinct that's at war, and it really is at war. It's one of shame. It's one of fear. It's one of loneliness, one of wanting to take care of yourself and be able to take care of the baby. And there's a lie that's being told that it's better 
it's safer to take the life of that baby in order to protect the mother, in order to save her from these things. And while there is some truth to that, it is a challenge, it is a difficulty, at the same time, encouragement is false. But yet we see this confliction of interest, a beautiful baby and the beauty of your own life, the freedom of your life, the lack of a burden. There are parts of us, instincts that desire to be free from the promised, bur uh, promised burden of a child and it's legal to abort or murder an unborn child in this land, yet to terminate the life of a preborn child is to not believe what God says. It's not, it's not a faith. As believers, we're freed from the whims of our hearts. We're, we're freed from the impositions of our culture. We're not bound to these paths which depart from faith and say, do what you will. Protect your own livelihood at all costs. The, the heinous account of what Pharaoh decreed gives a whole new meaning to go with the flow. As he says, in order to protect yourself, you'll need to throw your babies into the river. Go with the flow. For Christians, we're not bound to this. And really, neither were the Hebrews. Many of them felt that they had no option but to allow their babies to go with the flow. But when Jochebed saw her baby, she said, that's not what I'll do. It's been said of beauty that it is in the eye of the beholder. Well, I think that's true of Jochebed. And I think when she saw beauty, she saw it because she saw with eyes of faith. Her instincts were there just like ours are. She wanted to be protected. She wanted to have livelihood. She wanted to be safe. She didn't want a, all these things to be taken from her. But when she saw that baby, she said, he's beautiful and he's precious. And how did she do that in that moment? Because she saw with eyes of faith. We talk about this every week. Faith is not believing in God. Faith is believing God. She didn't just believe that God existed. She believed what God said. Recently, we considered the life of Joseph. I mentioned him a moment ago. He made his family promise in his old age on his deathbed, you take my body out of this place. When we go back, you bring me with you. Jochebed knew of that promise. That's one of the reasons why Joseph made that promise, made them swear. It was a testimony to all of Joseph's descendants, to all of Jacob's descendants, that God had made a promise. You say, well, you're speculating now. I don't think so. Why would, why would Jochebed look at her stomach and think, this baby is beautiful. This baby is precious. I'm going to keep this baby. I'm going to wear different clothes. I'm going to change my habits. I'm going to live in a way that would cover up the fact that this blessing of God is coming into my life. Because I think she believed there is hope. There's a reason to bring children into the world at this time. Many others saying, don't even have any children. It's a terrible place. And Jochebed says, no, this baby is beautiful. One day we'll be, we'll be delivered. One day we'll leave here and 
And maybe one day my son will live as a free man in the promised land. I don't know. Maybe he'll even be the one that leads them. She believed in the promise of God. When speaking of the coming destruction of Jerusalem in Matthew 24, Jesus says, Woe unto the woman who is nursing a child. He says, pity for the woman when this happens. Pity for the woman, despair for the woman who has children and is pregnant. That idea is, is, is common. We understand what it means. It's one of the dangers that we feel and sense when we bring children into the world. We think there is a danger here. And now I'm going to have to be on guard. I'm going to have to make sure that I'm protecting this child. And all the parents recognize that. And that's sort of the idea here that Jesus is saying. There's coming a day where it's not going to be convenient to, it's not going to be easy to protect a child. And if that was ever true, it was true of the day that Jochebed was living in. Woe unto the woman who finds out that she's pregnant. She doesn't see woe and pity, even though it's a reality. She says, he's beautiful. And she throws fear out the window because of her faith. Why? Why does she do that? She believed God. Would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 4? We looked at the second book in the Bible. Let's look at the first book in the Bible. Genesis chapter 4. When I think of Jochebed looking at her beautiful baby boy it, and hearing what she says about him, it makes me think of what Eve says about her child there in chapter 4. She has another baby, and she names him Seth. So, hard black Bible in front of you, Genesis chapter 4. It's actually on page 4 in the Bible. Before we actually read verses 25 and 26, I want to just give you a quick overview of what's happened in the first couple pages. We're on page four. Let's look at the first three pages. So page one and two, or chapters one and two, God is creating the world. There's nothing, and then there's everything. And God looks at everything he made, and he, what does he say? It's beautiful. He says it's good. This is precious. This is special. This is mine. This is doing what I want it to do. It's looking like I want it to look. That's Genesis 1 and 2. But then what happens in Genesis 3? The fall of man. Sin breaking into God's beautiful creation and destroying it, marring it. We see the fall of man, the curse of God on all of creation that Romans 8 talks about. But also in chapter 3, we see the promise of God. God looks into the face of his creation. He looks into the face of man and woman, Adam and Eve, and he says to you, to them, there is going to be pain. There's going to be struggles and trials and troubles, but I'm telling you right now that there is a deliverer that's coming, and he is going to break the chains that bind you. He's going to set everything right. So there's Adam and Eve, tears in their eyes, scars on their hands, their clothes marred, they're shaking, and God says, this is bad. 
what you've done is bad, but I'm going to save this. I'm going to fix all of this. And Eve, sweetheart, I'm going to do it through your descendant. I'm going to do it through your child. That's the end of chapter 3. We roll into chapter 4 and life goes on. Adam and Eve, they have two little boys and they try to cope. And Cain and Abel, they have a fight. It's pretty one-sided. Cain rises up and kills Abel. How do you think that made Eve feel? All the more. She's feeling the pain of what God told her in the garden. You, you sinned against me. You, you, you rebelled against me. And, and you've brought this upon yourself. But, sweetheart, I'm going to deliver you. And I'm going to use your son. And she says, <laughs> who's he going to use now? He's dead. And, and the only one that's alive is the one that killed him and took him from me. And I have nothing now. It's all, it's all broken. And I don't want any more babies. And I don't even want to live. I, bear, I bet this is the, sort of the, the sentiment of her heart. But look at Genesis 4, verses 25 and 26. What does it say? It says, Adam knew his wife again. What happens? She bore a son, and she called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Now, you can't read that statement there that is attributed to, to Eve like a, a middle-aged white man that lives in America in the 21st century that has no idea what's happening in Genesis 1, 2, 3, and 4. You have to read that and understand and, and hear the emotion that's in Eve's heart and on her lips. She's saying, God, you promised me a deliverer. You promised me a descendant. And he was going to turn all these things back. And my instincts told me to not have any more kids. My instincts told me that there would be no hope. And now look what you've done. You have appointed for me an offspring. And now the promise that you made me one chapter ago, it's able to be fulfilled again. Instinct was telling her to be afraid. It was saying, this isn't going to work out well. He's going to get killed too. He's just going to cause you more pain. Grief was commanding her, don't have any more children. You're just going to lose them. But what was faith saying? Faith was saying, God promised to raise up a deliverer through you and for you. So trust that. And what does she say? Well, I'm inserting the exclamation point. But God has appointed. God has given me. He's determined to give me another offspring, another way. She's not the only woman in the scriptures that I see having the same sort of an idea. When instincts would be telling her one thing about the pregnancy of a baby, her faith tells her another thing. At the risk of boring you, I want to ask you, making your fingers bleed as you dance through the pages. Let's go to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. That's the New Testament. It's the very beginning of the New Testament. The New Testament's a small section, uh, but as far as, you know, as far as pages and volume of pages, but nonetheless, it is vital to what we believe as Christians. Particularly on page, Luke chapter 1, again, if you're in the hard black Bible, you're going to be on page 1017. 1017. This is the, <clears throat> this is the account 
of Mary being informed that she's going to have a baby. The situation, the context different, but is, is, is quite different. But at the same time, I think some of the emotions that are generally associated with our instincts are similar. Mary's a, a young lady. She's a virgin. She's never been married. And she's visited by the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord says, hey, you're going to have a child. <clears throat> and um, you're going to call him Jesus. He's going to save people from their sins. And uh, you could also, people are going to call him Emmanuel because he's going to be God with us. Like, so this is pretty cool. And Mary, like any other teenager, would have probably been very, very scared. And not just because she wouldn't be able to finish high school, but more importantly because in this day and age, she would have been viewed far, far differently than the way that we would view somebody in a very similar situation. As a matter of fact, Mary's life would even be in danger. Her future most certainly was in jeopardy. She may not even live to see the end of the week. She had been engaged. She had been promised to another man. And now it looks as though she's been unfaithful because she's going to have a child. Her instincts are saying run. Her instincts are saying be afraid. They're saying protect your own life. Don't celebrate this. There's nothing to celebrate here. And what does Mary say? That in, in spite of all of the pressures, external and internal, what does she say? I love these, love these verses. Again, hear the emotion of this young woman in verse 46. Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. What does that mean? My, my soul is making a big deal about you, God, and not in a bad way. My spirit rejoices in God who is my Savior. For he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Temptation, the instinct is to say, oh no, they'll not call you blessed. There's a couple other names that they have for people like you. And she says, no, they'll call me blessed. And look what she says in 40, 49. For he who is mighty has done a great thing. Not a big thing, a big thing that's a good thing, that's a great thing. And his name is holy. Look down at verse 40, 50, 54, rather. 54. In this song that she's singing with great emotion, she says, He has helped his servant Israel. Who's that? That's the Hebrews. That's the ones that were in Egypt. And what does he say? What does she say? In remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Again, what's the natural instinct? Shame, fear. Faith says you should be ashamed of your or fear, fear and instinct says you should be ashamed of yourself, and faith says, you're blessed. For Mary, the, the law is saying she needs to be put to death, but through her faith, what, she, what is she hearing? Man, she's just been given life, and she's literally, humanly speaking, going to bring life, spiritual life, into the world. The promise that she heard through faith was good news. 
what do we see with these women? We looked at Jochebed. We, we looked at Eve. We looked at Mary. We, we, we see this, that the path of true faith will often diverge from what's both, uh, from both the law of the land and even the instincts of our hearts. That sometimes they walk together and sometimes they don't. And when they separate, what do we do? Well, we don't go with our instincts. I mean, we don't go with the cultural pressures. We live by faith. As people of God, we look to God and we hear what he said, we consider what he said, and then we say, we're going to believe that despite what I feel in my heart and what I see outside, I'm going to do what God has told me to do. Now, the idea here is, can be applied generally, but the context is parenting. And so I think it might be helpful for us to think about this statement here, this idea in the context of parenting. There's a desire, a natural one. It's even, I would say, instinctive that parents be friendly to their children. There's a desire that we even have a friendship with our children. And there's nothing wrong with that. Oftentimes, it's easy to be a friend to our children. But there's times in our lives as parents where we feel like if we say a certain thing or we draw a certain line in the sand and we protect our child from these, these dangers, that we will lose that friendship. And the desire of our heart and maybe even the pressure on the outside is to, to live by instincts and not by faith. The scriptures don't necessarily call us to be friends to our children, but to raise our children up into the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I'm not speaking or thinking of anything specifically, but I can tell you in my own life there's been a danger for me and really a danger for my children that I put my desire to be friendly toward them above what God has called me to do and being faithful to him towards them. There's many ways that you can see that playing out. It doesn't just apply to our, our parenting relationships with our children. In this world today, we're called to be kind by God. Jesus told us to be kind people, to forgive each, each other and to forgive others and to be kind to everybody, to be helpful and hospitable to everybody, even, it says, especially those, actually, who are of the household of faith, especially Christians, but everybody, be kind to them, be helpful. That's a natural instinct for us. There's certain positions that we can hold in this life as Christians that the world and the external pressures now don't view as kindness. And so there's this danger for us to say, my instincts tell me to be liked. My instincts tell me to work, to blend in so that I can be loved and thought of as a nice person. And it feels as though that's parting ways from what God has told me clearly in Scripture. And then we have a choice to make. Which way will we go? Will we obey our instincts and our desire to, to be thought of as kind and to be loved by all? Or are we going to take the road less traveled, so to speak, and speak the truth in love and kindly because that's not a dichotomy. Or maybe it's something different altogether for you this morning. Maybe your instincts are telling you to run. Sometimes running is really, really, really good. 
Maybe your instincts are telling you this morning that you need to work harder. That you need to fight better. You need to do all of these things. And maybe faith is saying, you need to rest. You need to take a break. You need to lay down and take a nap. You know, our instincts often are lining up with faith and sometimes it's the right thing to do when we feel, hey, I should work and I should fight and I should, I should keep trying. Sometimes that lines up with faith, but other times God is saying to us something different than our instincts are saying. And he's saying, I want you to just rest. I, I want you to take a nap. I want you to stop wrestling you spend any time with me and we're opening up the scriptures at some point we're going to find ourselves in psalms 3 i love psalms 3 psalm 3 i should say in psalm 3 what what do we see there well we see david who has brought a world of hurt down upon himself he's made a bunch of enemies he really did he blew it big time and he says all my foes are rising up against me, and they're all saying there's no help for him in God. And David's like, and you know what? I kind of believe that. I've blown it. But then he says, I remembered the Lord, and I called out to him. And what did he do? He came to me out of his holy hill, and he put a shield around me, and he said, David, I don't want you to fight. I want you to rest. David, I don't want you to work. I want you to take a nap. And what does it say? David says, my instincts, I'm putting the words in here, but David says, my instincts were telling me, fight, run, hide, scream, yell. But I didn't. I didn't do that. I, I took my belt off. I had my sword. I, I set my own small shield down. I don't need it because God's shield is about me. And I lay down and I fell asleep. I just let go and I rested. And then David says, you know what's it's really weird? I woke up. <laughs> Some of us think if we, if we went to bed, if we stopped fighting, if we, if we stopped wrestling with all the things that we're wrestling with, them, whether they be physical or spiritual, we think we'll never wake up. We'll die in our sleep. And David says, I didn't. I thought the same thing. I woke up and was shocked. I couldn't believe that the Lord had sustained me. I take that back. I can believe that he sustained me. I don't know where you're at this morning. There's a chance that many of you are right here, right now. Faith and instinct have separated. They've diverged. Faith and external pressures have separated. And you're there at that fork in the road and you're having to make a decision. I want to read a poem to you that's been so helpful to me. It's not in scripture, but I think it's helpful. It puts into words what I'm trying to say feebly here, and this is how it goes. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry I could not travel both and, and be one traveler. Long I stood and I looked down one as far as, it, as I could to where it bent in the under, undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear. Though as for that, the passing there had worn them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay, and leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. 
Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Friends, when the, the path of instinct and faith part ways, which way will you go? Will you take the broader path, or will you take the narrow path? Will you take the well-traveled path or the less-traveled path? Jesus has called us to take the less-traveled, less-trodden path. Brothers and sisters, take the path of Jochebed. Take the path of Eve. Take the path of Mary. See by faith the promises of God and continue to believe them. Let's pray. Father, we... Just thank you that you've given us promises to believe. You've not left us as a people without direction. You've not left us without an understanding of who you are and what you intend to do in the future. And yet we are a people that can be confused. We're a people that can get things turned around. And yet you are a God who's patient and you're kind and you call to us again this morning, inviting us to renew our faith in what you promised. God, you promised that you would sustain us. You promised that you would hear our prayers. You promised that if we waited on you, you would actually give us new strength. If we laid down and take, took a nap, that you would protect us. You promised us that in all things we would be more than conquerors you promised us that if we trusted you over the internal and external pressures that contradicted what you are calling us to do that in the end we would be glad that we took the road less traveled father the, the same pressures that the first century church that read this letter first we feel those pressures today too we feel pressures to leave what you've promised us. God, would you help us to see that what you've promised us, chiefly in Jesus, is far better than what people think of us, what we think of ourselves, anything that we can earn or achieve in this life. Father, help us to see that, and above all things, help us to see that Jesus truly is better. And this week, when we make mistakes, and we fumble and forget that, would you help us to remember the promise that you have saved us because of your goodness, not ours. But still yet, would you help us to be faithful in this week? And where we failed and gone on the wrong path, would we come back to the right one? Continuing to trust that the one who has promised is good and faithful. Father, your promises are beautiful. We look at the face of Jesus and we see that he is beautiful too. We love you and we pray in his beautiful name.